Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is an unlikely marriage, which actually means the marriage of marriage with Christianity. So the genesis of this topic is that we have been requested on occasion to take up the topic of marriage in this podcast. And I have to admit there was a certain hesitation on my part, at least, because it seems like there was no way of not getting sucked down the rabbit hole of all of the controversial topics that have been swirling in and about our culture regarding sexuality and marriage and family and children. And I just didn't want to do that again. There are lots of great people who have written lots of great stuff on that. So go read them. But what I thought we could do here today was actually try to approach this topic from a different angle, maybe a surprising angle, and in the process shed some light on what is a very uh, dark and tangled mess right now. So, Dad, here is my thesis. The most surprising thing about the Christian doctrine of marriage is that there is a Christian doctrine of marriage. I would think that there are, in fact, what I'd like to do us to talk through here is all the reasons why we should be very startled that there is the Christian doctrine of marriage exists at all, and it exists in the form that it does. Well, amen. Let's (laughs) problematize the question before we attempt to show forth a fresh perspective on the Christian doctrine of marriage. Uh, Because I think you're right that in our culture, you have on the one side a simplistic championing of so-called family values, and on the other side, you have purportedly radical critiques of patriarchy, marriage, and the family as all being oppressive structures of malice and injustice and so forth. And I think you and I would want to say, in their very polarization, these are two foxes tied together by the tail. (laughs) Nice Samson illusion there. Very good. Very good. Well, great. Well, I think that let's just um, say up front that what we mean by marriage here is the sexually exclusive, faithful, lifelong pairing of a man and a woman in a relationship in which they are to love each other and are to partake of sexual intercourse together. And that, and then that children will likely, barring a biological um difficulties will naturally, at least until very recently in history, emerge from that uh, particular pairing. And I think that in particular is so taken for granted by people now that that's what marriage is, that it's two people and that it involves love and that it involves sexual fidelity. Um, even the outrage people feel over adultery, um, even when they have been guilty of it themselves <laughs> at other times, I think is evidence that we somehow in a very bedrock way buy into this definition of marriage. Though if you look around just at human cultures historically and throughout the world, there's absolutely no reason to assume that that is what marriage is supposed to be. And it does emerge out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So, but again, even though that is the Judeo-Christian tradition, it should still be startling to us that that's where it ended up being. So that's, that's where we'll go from here. Okay, let's start giving the reasons why it's surprising that this was the product of Christianity doctrinally. Well, here's the thing. Jesus didn't get married. I'm sorry, Da Vinci Code. He really, really, really didn't get married. 
And so someone as central as the founder going into, you know, fairly mature adulthood, I think early 30s back at that time was a pretty ripe old age already. We have absolutely no reason to think that he ever paired up with a woman in any way, shape or form. And I think that should be the first template of obviousness. Well, obviously, Christ and Christianity are not in favor of marriage. Moreover, according to the canonical New Testament, the chief apostle, literally the chief apostle is Paul, and we know on his own testimony that he was not married but celibate. Right, which must have been also kind of surprising for a Pharisee of the time. Obviously, the pressure would have been in the direction of marrying and begetting children. And for that matter, the other apostles, if they were married, it played, it played a negligible role in their witness or the memory about them. We hear a reference to Peter's mother-in-law, but never his wife. Whatever happened to her, we just don't know. So there's in the kind of main figures of the story, there are no marriages. Okay, so that's one reason why it's surprising that marriage emerges from the earliest Christianity as a doctrine. Continue. Okay. Well, there's also lots of places where I think the subtext seems to be that probably for apocalyptic reasons, but also for others that we can get into, like uh, the problem of the flesh and its passions, um, there's every reason to think that a better Christian or an ideal Christian is not a married Christian. So, for example, in in Mark 10 and Parallels, we're told that um, the relationship between parents and children can be broken if it interferes with adherence to the gospel. Now, I I should note, I I realized for the first time rereading this passage that it does not say the same thing about spouses. It says like father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, all those will be broken, but it doesn't actually say husband and wife. So that maybe is a subtle clue by its absence of upholding marriage as much as possible. But we do, we are used to hearing these kind of, of things about breaking the primary family bonds, like also leave the dead to bury their own dead or, um, or in, in the, the kingdom to come, they will no longer marry or be given in marriage. So there seem to be these hints scattered throughout um, Jesus' primary teaching that um, if family stands in the way of the gospel, walk away. Yes, and that's, that's why, you know, all the preachers listening to us know every so often they have to preach on this text and how difficult it is uh, to hear the Lord say, whoever loves father, brother, sister, mother, more than me is not worthy of me, <laughs> you know. And yeah. I remember the first time as a young pastor, I had to preach on that text. And a whole lot of the folks in the church were in the church, not least of all, I mean, there were many reasons, but not least of all, because they were trying to find the spiritual resources to hold their families together. And here they hear the word of the Lord saying, don't let it become an idol. It can become an idol. And I remember a very poignant pastoral discussion with one of the women on the church board who was actually an example of one who had to put up with a great deal of family resistance in order to be active as a Christian disciple in the congregation and so forth. Anyway, let's go on. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that really does point to this um, inherent tension of of how do you value this relationship above all except God. So that that also reminds me of of Paul in First Corinthians seven, where he talks a lot about marital issues. He just says really plainly, "Well, it would be better if you weren't married, like me. But if you can't help but burn, then for heaven's sake, get married and get on with it." <laughs> so it's it's uh, not exactly a ringing endorsement. It's there, and it is one of one of the reasons why we do come to a Christian doctrine of, of marriage. Um, and also it's interesting there. He says that, um, in the case of a, a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, that you should stay together if the if the unbelieving spouse will tolerate it, um, because just by the sheer fact of your faith, you will sanctify the the uh, children, and you may end up saving your spouse. But it's it's again, it's a um, modest endorsement of the relationship in that particular context. I think you could also mention along the same lines here the force of the double love commandment. It seems to level or even eliminate special relationships. Love your enemy. What benefit do you get from loving those who love you? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above all. Those who love their lives will lose it. All of these statements about the what I call the hierarchy of love uh, in the or the ordo caritatis, the order of love, all of these statements seem to level special human relationships. Why should you be exclusively devoted to one spouse, not only today, but for the rest of your life? You know, you should actually give up that special attention and share your love equally with all. Totally. I mean, I think when people call to mind what is distinctive about Christian ethics, it is loving those who don't deserve it that you can't get anything back with, back from. That's a, a, a very much, you know... Um, the, the, I mean, the enemy love is the primary form, but even the idea of, of giving to those who cannot give back to you, invite to your party, those who cannot return the invitation. It seems right. like everything that makes Christianity distinctive uh, and unique as an ethical system is, like you said, militating against any kind of relationship in which there is parity or equality or even close to those things, you know, um, that you, you would want to say, well, you know, of course, you know, if you love your spouse and your loves your spouse loves you back, you know, how does that make you better than a Gentile? And, you know, we should just note here for future reference that this was a major factor in the ethical thinking of the uh, supreme philosopher of modernity, Immanuel Kant, who was systematically suspicious of what he called inclination as a bigotry in favor of those who whom we normally call our loved ones. And because of this bigotry we have in favor of our loved ones, we're incapable of executing blind justice. And so we have to root out, systematically root out uh, our inclinations in order to calculate equal love for all equally. That's kind of the figure of blind justice, lady justice with a blindfold around her eyes. So she doesn't get... Uh, distracted or uh, attracted uh, by local parochial loves. Well, that might be a good argument for why love and justice should not be considered the same thing. 
But I think um, listeners may recognize in Kant some echoes of what they may have found in Luther, who, of course, is a relentless critic of all the ways in which our loves are self-serving and self-centered rather than other-centered. But it would be very easy, I think, and I think it's been common in a lot of interpretations of Luther to overlook the fact that he actually does maintain the uniqueness of relationships given. For example, in his commentary on the fourth commandment about honor your parents, he's very clear, like, your mother and father, however feeble or eccentric they may be, are as the masks of God to you. You have a unique relationship to them which cannot be replaced by any other relationship. And of course, he does say the same thing of marriage as well. So I think in the, the Kantian ethic that you just described, you see one one genuine strain of critique in the ethical thinking of Christianity, but totally unbalanced by the other. Let's go on. Other reasons why. It's surprising that marriage emerges as a Christian doctrine. Well, so I would say two, two more that we should take up are both related to the apocalyptic um, nature of most of the New Testament. Um, one of them, of course, is that if the end is coming soon, then settling down in property, household, spouse, and of course, children doesn't seem to have much purpose. And I'll just note that um, John the Baptist is the very last miraculous conception in a case of infertility in the sense of like suppose, being supposed to preserve the family line because that was so important, of course, to the, the people of Israel. Of course, he doesn't either. He also is one of these guys who grows up and doesn't get married. He gets beheaded instead and leaves no children. But there's, I mean, that that story happens, you know, at the beginning of Luke, of, of John's miraculous conception. And there are no other conception miracles in the entire New Testament. All the language, uh, if you talk about children, shifts instead over towards adoption as the primary motif of the nature of the church, which of course um, is is a good in its own right, but it is symbolic and suggestive of the breaking of the natural lineage of fertility uh, that, that comes through the sexual covenant. As you were saying, no longer do I see my immortality in the children I beget or give birth to, but I see immortality in the miracle promised of the resurrection. And so that's a shift in horizon from a imminent, this-worldly expectation of life to continue in my posterity and uh, to a shift to an eschatological horizon in which new life is to be given uh, from above. Right. And so very closely related to that, I'm sure, is the is the strong current of of polemic against the flesh and its passions that we find throughout the ethical writings of the New Testaments. Um, this is, as I think you can probably say better than I can, uh, complicated because it's something that will be taken up and exploited by Gnostic movements. But there is a, a genuine um, New Testament Christianity concern over the ways in which bodily desires maybe are not as as wicked as, as mental or emotional desires, but they're certainly caught up in it. And we are exhorted again and again to control the passions of the flesh, uh, not let them dominate, and let them give way to something more spirit-centered. And it's very easy, of course, to associate that with critique of all forms of physical sexual delight or, or joy or intimacy of any kind. Right. Let's just flag that as a very controversial topic, how to interpret the rhetoric in the New Testament of the flesh and its passions. And just briefly note here that for Luther, to speak paradoxically, the flesh is a spiritual power, 
uh, which is opposed to the Holy Spirit of God. It's not simply meat or muscles or hormones or emotions or anything like that. It's a spiritual power of self-reliance as opposed to reliance upon God. Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, j- just a, a side note into our, our present times, there's since the 60s been this total romanticization of, of bodily desires. But I, I think maybe some of the explosion of blowback we've seen recently is that that has never been accompanied by a proper critique of the all the other things get, that get attached to it, not least of all power and status. Uh, people don't just fall in love or desire each other. They also use each other for their, their status and their self-perception. And I mean, just making that elementary connection between how, as you said, the natural bodily impulses can be exploited by the flesh if understood as a spiritual power. I think that is a, um, an insight we desperately need to bring back into our cultural talk about sexuality. But in any case, the rhetoric of the New Testament about the flesh and its passions is another reason to be surprised that in its proper place, namely marriage, sexual desire is, uh, comes to be approved as a blessing and gift. That's a surprise. Uh, yes, agreed. Now, just two final comments on why we should be surprised that there is a Christian doctrine of marriage. The first one is that in its time and place, there was no reason to associate love and sex and marriage, all three of those things, as being as inherently belonging to one another. Um, I think I mentioned last year this wonderful book by a woman named Sarah Rudin called Paul Among the People, which is trying to set Paul's apparently controversial teachings in the setting of its time. But simply speaking, the idea that you would marry for love, it just is not there. Marriage is primarily an economic arrangement. The idea that men especially owe their wives fidelity is just you know, like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, restrict myself to one person? No way. And and then that um, marriage should be the primary locus either of love or sex. Again, so putting these three things together is such a startling thing to do. And the reason I, I raise this is because uh, Christianity is fighting against the grain so much anyway in Greco-Roman society that to make this association was further fighting against the grain. It would have been much easier because it had the resources inside of itself to concede the point and just, you know, let let sex, marriage, love all go their separate ways and focus attention on on Christ and the spirit in a in a, a less uh, troublesome and uphill battle kind of way. And just to follow up on that, I think it becomes very clear how awkward the arrangement was because especially in the first several centuries of Christianity um, and with a long tail afterwards, uh, there are so many efforts on the part of Christians to dissociate themselves from sexuality to court just to, to be done with it. Um, like, of course, you know, monasticism starts very early. One of the primary things they're trying to do is fight against uh, sexual desires of the flesh. Um, you know, poor Augustine gets such a bad rap of, of being anti-flesh, but he's like the softy moderate compared to the leading figures in his world who were really, you know, pushing for zero sex, zero marriage. A true Christian has nothing to do with any of this at all. And Augustine, who, you know, because of probably personal experience and a lot of uh, pastoral experience, realized that, that this is not right. So even all of his ambiguous feelings about the place of sexuality in Christianity is so 
much more reasonable than what was by far more the dominant, you know, elite line of Christianity in those early centuries. And I think we also have to bear in mind here that we're talking about a world in which there is neither hospital nor medical doctor, no pain relief, no um, no Tylenol, no antibiotics, no contraception. No epidurals for childbirth. Yeah, right. And so if you're a sexually active woman, you're going to be pregnant constantly. And half the time you will uh, lose the child in childbirth and the other half of the time, you may die in childbirth. And if you're a faithful man to the woman, you're going to lose your beloved and have to remarry once, twice, three times in order to raise a family. So it's in, this, in a world like this, uh, you could easily see people reasoning that it's a dirty trick of the devil in exchange for a moment's pleasure. You, you get a truckload of trouble, pain, grief, and loss. It's a miracle in under those conditions that people uh, sustained naturally such uh, relationships that are analogous to what we call Christian marriage. Boy, is that ever the truth. <laughs> it is. I think it is, that is a really good point. The disproportion between the momentary pleasure of sexual intimacy and then, you know, having another human being dependent on you for years and years and years. And it certainly doesn't stop even when they hit adulthood. So, um, okay, well, I think we've we've made a pretty good case of why Christians should ditch marriage <laughs> and sex and love of any exclusive or unique kinds. Um, and yet, that is not what the faith has given us. So let's now reverse direction and try to reconstruct why, in fact, we do have a Christian doctrine of marriage. Would you like to start or shall I? Well, to begin with, it's bound up with that battle against the Gnostics and the Docetists. The, as the second century church first was convinced that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh and that in his own flesh he had won our salvation and maintained that. First John chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 identified denying that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh as the teaching of the Antichrist uh, as the church was in in the battle with the Gnostics and Docetists, convinced that if uh, salvation does not include the human body, uh, then there was no need of a crucified Christ. And that can never be. Because there was the need of a crucified Son of God in order to save humanity, then humanity's salvation must be the salvation of the flesh. And therefore, the entire Old Testament is also Christian scripture. It is the indispensable preparation for the gospel. Not Platonism, but the Old Testament is the indispensable preparation of the gospel. And here, Israel's down-to-earth materialism, not in the common senses that we use the word but its orientation to life in the body on this good earth and its belief in the promises of God extending through the generations to Abraham and his descendants, the creation story, the song of songs, 
Proverbs, prophetic comparisons of God to husband and Israel to bride, countless other places. Uh, marriage is upheld as at the center of a good creation, uh, even though it is also the place where the negative fallout of sinfulness in polygamy, infidelity, and rape is vividly illustrated time and time again. So, Together with the battle against the Gnostics and the Docetists for the bodiliness of Christian salvation had to come, uh, like it or not, early Christians, an affirmation of the created goodness of sex, marriage, and the family. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, you know, listeners will know by now that we spend a lot of time urging Christians to fully embrace the Old Testament as true Christian scripture. But I, I, the, the way you just uh, set that up, Dad, made me want to restate that claim again in this way. We should understand the New Testament to be a concentrated episode of the people of Israel, not a sequential detachment or improvement or supersession of it. So think of the whole Bible as the story of Israel that reaches out towards Gentiles. And then within that story, in a particular time, we have this very hyper-focused story on Jesus and the apostles, but they are within it. They are not detached from it or after it. And so there, therefore, I think it's just so easy to read the New Testament in this spiritualist way that in our culture, we inherited from the, 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 you know, the Greek philosophical tradition and somehow think that it can just be detached from all that stuff you laid out of the Old Testament as being the, the stage on which it takes place. Absolutely. And, you know, even in an epistle like the letter to the Galatians, which could arguably represent the temptation to set Old and New Testaments against each other, how does the Apostle Paul conclude. If you look at the very last verses of the letter to the Galatians, he says, peace to all those who follow this rule, his rule in all the churches, that there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith operative in love or a new creation, something like that. And then he says, peace to all who follow this rule and upon the Israel of God and upon the Israel of God. That, to me, that, that's, that's the linchpin of your argument, Sarah, that the whole story of Scripture is about the marriage between the Lord God and his covenant partner, Israel. And we're going to get to that idea a little bit later on. But let's continue. What else? Why else? Why else do we have a Christian doctrine of script of marriage? Well, because Jesus told us to. <laughs> so, so uh, I, there's the the old joke about the unmarried marriage counselor, but I think Jesus is the one person who gets off the hook on that accusation. No, he <laughs> says very clearly and unambiguously, and now I think he really had to, <laughs> having having made the case against Christian marriage. There needed to be a time and place where Jesus echoed Genesis two, as he does in Mark ten and in parallels, that um, in the 
the beginning, God created the male and female, so they leave their parents, they cleave to one another, and it is good, and it is right, and that is blessed. And um, I, I think that unless Jesus, the celibate man, had said that, it would have been easy to assume that his life story was illustrating why not to. And this really reminds me of a, a principle that Luther invokes again and again is make sure before you obey a command that it's actually directed toward you. And don't just look at how someone else behaves and assume that in there is a command for me. And this would be a perfect example of it. Do as Christ tells you to do. Don't try to imitate Christ yourself. And in this case, Christ says very clearly, it is good to marry and it is good to welcome the children. Right. And we'll see a talk a little bit later about the fact that Christ uh, weds himself to sinful humanity in an act of self-sacrificing love. And that bride from his his proposal that emerges is the church. We'll get to that in, in a little bit later. But in Mark uh, 10 and parallels, notice what Jesus says. This is God's creative intention from the beginning. It is God who is active in this to the present day. What God has joined a son, uh, together, let no one tear apart, right? And in the context of this, he also uh, says that the permission to divorce is on account of human sinfulness. Hardness of heart is the expression that is used. So that uh, God's intention in joining people together is for an exclusive fidelity that is lifelong. And to uh, follow that up again, uh, Luther says, I think in the large catechism, is that if you teach married people to love each other and to be sexually faithful and, and enjoy their time together, then you don't even have to tell them not to get divorced. They won't want to anyway. And I think that's the, the subtext here as well, is that the whole point is that you are supposed to be loving each other and loving each other in such a way in which divorce ceases to be an attractive option anyhow. Yes, and I think that, the, the again, the key to this whole discussion is faith in the God who joins together. It's faith in God who joins together that makes the relationship of spouses one of love uh, because it's an, a, a belief that God has, for my good, joined me to this particular other one. Yeah, and though we often hear, and often with good reason, critiques of how people contract their alliances nowadays with no, you know, family or social context and, you know, hookup culture or whatever. Um, it, that's one thing. But I think we should see that the long trajectory through Christian history toward allowing the principles in a marriage to choose each other rather than to be bought and sold in alliances of political or economic nature, I think is an outworking of this basic insight that if we believe that God puts us together and that our task is to love each other and be sexually faithful to each other, then there needs to be some actual opt-in <laughs> the part of the bride and groom, that they actually do want to love each other and want to go to bed together. Those are important aspects. Okay, and so to build on that in the synoptics, um, you might also be tend to think that in the Gospel of John, this would be less evident because, of course, John's Jesus is famously floating a few inches off the ground. But we have, of course, in John 2, the beloved and famous uh, story of the wedding at Cana, in which Jesus goes to a, such a, a blowout party for this um, unnamed couple that they drink up all the wine and he performs his first miracle, his first sign, which is a very loaded term in the Gospel of John 
man um, at his um, mother's intervention to turn the water into wine and then um, the party can go on and it is a marriage party. And this has long been interpreted as a major indication of Jesus' blessing on the good of marriage again. In fact, when I was married to your mother many years ago, 46 I think, I asked my father, who was something of an artist, to paint a picture for our wedding. And he painted a picture of a laughing Jesus at the wedding of Cana. We still have it. I remember that. It's it's still on display in our house. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I grew up looking at that. All right. So, yes. So so even uh, the the Johannine Jesus is pro-marriage. And then... Looking towards the book of Acts, which is famously more down to earth, as is the Gospel of Luke, although the major figures are not um, married, some of the minor ones are. And um, I'm particularly struck by the contrasting pair of, on the one hand, Ananias and Sapphira, and on the other hand, Aquila and Priscilla. And I think one of the things going on there is Luke illustrating that marriage, just like pretty much anything else can be used either for the gospel or against it. And in, um, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it is their collusion to hold back part of the proceeds of the land that they sold that, um, in that case, you see a marriage in which your exclusivity has become poisonous and sneaky. Whereas by contrast, later on, we see the the case of Aquila and Priscilla, who are also known to Paul and mentioned by him in his letters, who are a married couple. They both work. We don't know anything about their children, but they are teachers. Priscilla is often mentioned first when the two of them are paired together. And uh, even in Acts uh, 18, 19, they are instructing the slightly misinformed Apollos about the right way to understand Christian baptism. So in that case, the marital bond is turned toward the positive good of advancing the apostolic message about Jesus Christ. And we see other little hints of um, the the generational covenant. Um, <laughs> well, let's say the Perusia being so long delayed that the generational covenant starts to get a foothold in the, the realm of the gospel and the church. So uh, we hear about Philip the evangelist and his four daughters who prophesy. We don't know anything about his wife, so this isn't primarily about marriage, but there is the fact that this uh, the gift of the gospel has gone to a second generation and his daughters. And Paul's co-worker, Timothy, um, who, you know, again, shows up all over the place and has two letters written to him uh, in the tradition of Paul, at the very least. But there's a mention that uh, that Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, were also believers. I think that's the only three-generational Christian family we know of in the New Testament. So, you know, again, because of the nature of the New Testament, it's very telescoped in time. But even around the edges, we begin to see how marriage and generational life are being uh, called up in service of the gospel, but they are not as such being destroyed. And I think that's the really important point to take away from here. And from that, those cases that uh, you're citing as evidence, we could also add explicit apostolic instruction most notably uh, 1 Corinthians 7, which was always regarded in the history of theology as the seat of uh, the doctrine, along with Ephesians chapter 5, where you see uh, encouragement. Uh, uh, Paul makes the remarkable statement, uh, 
the husband's body does not belong to him but to the wife, and the wife's body does not belong to her but to the husband, and so that they are only to deprive one another of their bodies for a specific time of prayer. Otherwise, they are committed by their relationship to conjugal exchange as perhaps we could say mutual submission of bodies. There's also in Ephesians 5 that instruction of husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church and saying that the relationship of husband and wife is a um, indication of the great mystery of Christ's marriage to the church. That's a passage that's very important in the historical doctrine of marriage in Christianity. I think, finally, we're seeing here that not only in Jesus's parables that there's bridal imagery, and in the book of Revelation, of course, there's the great marriage of the Lamb and the church. The uh, whole notion of marriage is metaphorically central to the proclamation of the gospel. And if that's true, then surely Christian marriages should be in some kind of analogy, should be in some kind of an analogy to the great marriage of Christ and the church. Yeah, and I think what we would we would want to lift up is that there is always kind of a dialogue going on between the two, between the actual real-life marriages that take place in human time and history and this incredibly formative and powerful metaphor of marriage that is most instantiated in Christ's uh, self-giving marriage to the church and modeling this kind of, like you said, this mutual submission and this um, surprising injunction for husbands to love love their wives, not simply make use of them. But I, I think what's, t- to me, what's interesting and important about this is that it does really talk about, it does really suggest that the specifics of of a particular marriage and that in any given marriage, the, the uh, well, let's put it this way, in almost every job that you will ever take in your life, someone else could take the job, right? <laughs> like you, the point of a job is that different persons can occupy it. An office is something that can be occupied by many different people. But that absolutely does not apply to a marriage. You cannot simply sub out one of the main characters and say, well, it's still a marriage. It will go on as such. There's something always very specific and tied to the individual person, who they are, what they look like, what family they come from, their personalities, everything. And I think that is the part that, as we alluded to earlier, the Kantian version of Christian and Lutheran ethics has a really hard time with. And I think um, focusing particularly on on that as being the, the proper analog to Christ's unique love of the church will help us get out of this, um, this uh, false ethical superiority that seems to characterize the popular notion of Christian ethics. Yes, it's the scandal of particularity. First of all, the particularity of Christ and the particularity of Christ's love for the church, and then by derivation, the particularity of God joining together a particular uh, man and woman for lifelong union and exclusive fidelity and so forth. So I think what we've done here, Sarah, is set forth the positive agenda of Scripture as the source of the uh, church's doctrine of marriage. Uh, And it's true that this does not immediately answer any of the hot-button questions of the day. 
we've simply stated on its own terms and in its own voices the surprising reality of a Christian doctrine of marriage. Okay, so now that we've done that, what are we going to do with it? (laughs) Well, I think you have a few thoughts that I would like to bring in an ecumenical conversation partner here in a minute, but why don't you think, what does it mean for us? Well, I think the first thing simply to be said is that marriage is not the gospel, but marriage is definitely blessed by the gospel, and the gospel affirms what was first given in creation, and that with some exceptions, probably not many, human flourishing is tied not to generic notions of equally distributed love for all human beings, which, you know, frankly is not possible anyway, but the unique and specific pairing of two people with one another for the sake of loving each other, staying together throughout the course of their life, and enjoying sexual intimacy together. So that 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 I think is the the primary claim to be made and I'm I'm kind of surprised that it needs to be made but I think it actually does. <laughs> it needs to be affirmed that this this is both a creation good and an evangelical good, a little e evangelical. That's great Sarah and I think it actually provides a nice segue to what I want to talk about if I can reference the Thomistic axiom that grace does not destroy nature but redeems and elevates and sanctifies it or fulfills it. I recently read a very interesting book by a Roman Catholic theologian that I respect, Matthew Levering. The name of the book is Engaging the Doctrine of Marriage, Human Marriage as the Image and Sacrament of the Marriage of God and Creation. It's a very new book. It came out just this year, 2020. And I'd like to say a little bit about it here and get your reactions to it. Now, granted, you know, there are some going to be some semantical and even conceptual uh, disagreements between the perspectives of Lutheran theology and Roman Catholic theology on marriage. But I hope we can push past that to see a great deal of common ground. And as a result, if we're going to disagree with levering in any way, we can make a very precise uh, targeted disagreement and not some global rejection of Catholic doctrine of marriage. How's that sound? Sounds great. Go for it. I'm the kind of a theologian uh, who thinks that the overgrown tradition of Christian theology needs a drastic pruning so that we can see again what's generative and essential. Uh, But Levering has the opposite tendency. He's making the effort to save as much as he can of this overgrown tree. Uh, And, you know, that's a, a different impulse, and I appreciate it. But at the same time, he recognizes that there are real problems in the way that the Catholic doctrine of marriage as a sacrament has been communicated uh, in the past, especially in the past 100 or 200 years. And he, his solution to this is to take the doctrine of marriage out of the hands of the canon lawyers and put it back into the context of Scripture. Well, that sounds good. It does. And I think any Lutheran or Protestant who reads his book will be deeply impressed with how thoroughly he is grounding all of his affirmations in very detailed and careful reading of Scripture. 
including, of course, historical critical perspectives. So that effort to return to the sources in Scripture fundamentally, I think, recontextualizes Catholic concerns for exclusiveness and indissolubility uh, and puts them and procreation and puts them back into uh, the marriage covenant. Now, as a Christian sacrament, no, now notice the subtlety here, not qua civil contract, but qua Christian covenant that locates marriage within a much broader divine plan of salvation as a creation that from the very beginning has been destined by God for the eschatological wedding feast of Christ and his people, the church. So that's, that's a, a hermeneutical move that I think is extremely help, helpful because it allows us to get out of the legalistic canon law perspective uh, of recent centuries, and which minimized the unitive element of mutual self-giving love in favor of legalistic indissolubility, even of loveless marriages. And all, then you have all the casuistic uh, silliness about annulments, uh, playing, uh, paying for annulments to get out of bad marriages, something available to those wealthy enough to purchase escape. So I think that's basically the, the project of the book. Let me pause and get your reactions to that before I go on. Well, I think it's really interesting to bring up the does grace um, destroy or transform nature. I, I think that's a, often a hugely misunderstood point between Lutherans and Catholics. And the pre precise location of the Lutheran critique is especially where it comes to the will's ability to love God above all things. Uh, th that's really where Luther is going to attack the idea that you have it in you, or you can do what is in you, or you can do your best and God will do the rest. Th that's where the sharpness of the polemic of grace versus nature comes into play. But if you, again, if you read more extensively in Luther, you find for instance, in the, the Genesis commentary, which I just love, Luther actually makes an explicit argument for grace um, working with and building up nature, and it's specific in emotional life and bodily life. Luther strongly says there, I mean, and again and again, it's not a passing comment, that the, the most saintly people of Genesis are the ones who feel their emotions most deeply, because the Holy Spirit does not turn them off in a stoic way. And um, and also in their their marital lives and their sexual lives, you know, he he doesn't um, reject that, but says in fact that's precisely where the spirit comes to bear. And I think the 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 deep principle for Luther, and I think this is this is what our time needs to hear so badly, is that you actually cannot enjoy the goods of creation if you make them ultimate. You actually need the leavening and somewhat. Um, 
decentering force of the gospel, drawing your attention to something greater like God or the kingdom in order to receive the goods of creation like marriage or friendship or children or work without them becoming the gods in your place. So I think if we, from what you've told me about levering uh, in this, you know, this description here and what you've said to me before, I think what we can see and I think that seems to be what he, that kind of grace nature distinction is what he is tending toward, not the, the usual site of Lutheran Catholic disagreement. Yeah, well said, Sarah. And there's a very important point that you're making here. There's a, a phrase used in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says to, the, to those that have something, they should have it as having not, having as having not. Ah. And, mm. and I think that's when you think about marital love, uh, what, a, what an insight, what a wisdom into the what marital love is, having as having not, you know, with the vow is to have and to hold till death do us part. So, and, and we say to one another, I am yours and you are mine, as if we were each other's possessions. But human beings cannot simply be each other's possessions without destroying them as persons. So we are to have them in a way that is not possessive or jealous or or uh, domineering or something like that, we are to have them as having not. And that, that, that it's not surprising to me that Paul makes that statement in the context of 1 Corinthians 7. And you're also right about Luther, and I always think of his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, where he says, Christ is not a foe of nature. He has come uh, to redeem nature as his own creature who the devil has ruined, right? So there's this idea that Christ comes as a liberator of nature from its oppression by the devil, uh, not a foe, but the savior of nature. I just want to say that fits uh, so beautifully with what we talked about in the last episode about illness and healing, where Christ is the enemy of the illness and the affliction that weighs down creatures made in God's image. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think this all tends towards the really important dialectic, I guess we could say, we need to hold between the goods of creation and the goods of redemption, that if you absolutize creation, you will lose both creation and redemption. If you allow creation to be redeemed, you can actually hold on to the goods of creation in the right way without absolutizing them. Right. And that's, again, a more biblical way of talking about the Thomist axiom, grace does not destroy, but fulfills nature. Okay, onward with Levering. It's very interesting that he organizes the book as a tour through basic Christian doctrine. So first of all, the theological anthropology, the doctrine of the image of God. And here I'm happy to say, considering our early disagreement, earlier disagreement about this, that Levering's on my side. Not only... <laughs> Are they made male and female so that the image of God is social in nature, but it's particularly focused on the human couple of Adam and Eve? Now, he's synthesizing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But the point is, is that it is in the partnership of the male and the female that the image of God resides. Now, what does, where does that leave singles? whether by celibacy or by personal choice or by outliving spouses, uh, how, how do they remain image of God? And Levering, for Levering as a Catholic, this is very simple. 
In these circumstances, they fulfill the human vocation to be fruitful and multiply in other ways. They don't literally have to be bearing children, but they can be, uh, they can be fruitful and multiplying through all sorts of other uh, uh, spiritual extensions of the vocation of the image of God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it. Yeah, I mean, I, okay, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I didn't read the book, so I, I, this may not be a, a fair critique, but it does seem to me to kind of privilege action as acquiring for you the the image of God, and therefore putting some sort of disproportionate burden not only on singles to to act spiritually, but somehow they're more obligated to act spiritually since married people can just procreate and be done with it. So I don't know if that's what he intended, but I'm not sure I would locate the the obvious affirmation that unmarried people, including like all children, are really in the image of God or, or really human um, in that particular way. Well, yeah, but here again, you have to distinguish between the gift and the task, and they're, but they come as a package deal. The image of God is explained by the mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, and that with the gift, the dignity of being made in the image of God becomes the task of actually uh, being like God, God-like in being junior partners with the creator uh, in this little uh, part of the creation that's given to your dominion and so forth. But let's go on. That's, I just want to make Lovering's point here. And I think this he really cashes this out in the next doctor, uh, section on the doctrine of the fall. He points out that the sin of origin is committed by the couple, not by Adam alone, not by Eve alone, but by the couple. And what he reasons then is that this most blessed of all the fundamental human social relations is therefore also the most afflicted because it's so important, because it's so precious, because it's so fundamental, its disruption by the fall into sin can be so catastrophic. Adam says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit to eat. The woman says, the serpent who you created tempted me. The blame game goes on and the divorce between Adam and Eve, the spiritual divorce between Adam and Eve occurs right in the story where they disown one another in order to uh, evade their own responsibility for the collective failure. So that's a really powerful point, I think, that he makes that the Christian doctrine of marriage does not include any romantic glorification of an idyllic happy marriage uh, as some kind of automatic thing. It can be the greatest blessing, but it can be the most, the greatest affliction as well. Boy, and, and our our wide experience of humanity bears that one out, doesn't it? <laughs> and, there, and next, now, Lutherans should love this. Then The next chapter is that this situation points to the cross of Christ provided in Christian baptism, as the remedy to sinful self-seeking in the spouse. And that means that something more than what is available naturally to fallen humanity must be provided for couples to affirm and to sustain in a fallen world exclusiveness and indissolubility, knowing that the cultivation of their marriage relationship analogizes the great plan of God 
uh, for the Lord God's commitment to the fallen creation culminating in the marriage feast of Christ and his bride, the church, eschatologically. Man, what Lutheran can't love that? I mean, that's just <laughs> so on target. You might get lovering in trouble if you keep saying that, Dad. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm thinking I should actually write a review of this book. I like it so much. Now, of course, he does hit some of the hot-button issues in ways that are going to annoy people on one side or the other. But let me continue. He says, what is the he asks the question, what is the specific good or goods of marriage? So that it's unlike this was related to our earlier question about the specificity of the marriage relationship. What is the specific good of it, right, that makes the marriage relationship unlike all the other uh, friendships that are possible in life? And he answers, the one flesh union, which in turn may bring into existence vulnerable little ones who will be in need of parental care for many, many years. And if that's the specific good of marriage, of course, it's a no-brainer that our post-Christian culture wants radically to separate sexual intercourse and procreation. He says that this separation of sexual intercourse and, and babies is the source of social injustice, beginning with the, in, the lack of justice of progenitors to their offspring, in the sense both of denying their existence in an abortion or, or preventing their existence in an abortion, or especially in men disowning responsibility for the, for the, to the women who bear their children. And this, because this is the fundamental human relationship, if injustice is sourced here, its ramifications are going to be massive. There's the basic economic fact that is beyond dispute that children of married people are wealthier and do better on every conceivable measure, and children of one parent only suffer more. And this is often misunderstood in a kind of moralistic criticism of single moms. Not at all. Most single moms are totally heroic in in shoulder, soldiering on without a husband or a man around to help. The point is that, specifically what you said, the injustice of one parent abandoning their offspring. That is just, it's a, it's a, a demonstrably, it's a statistically demonstrably evil that is inflicted upon the next generation. Yes, and so much of the abortion is also a result of this male failure, the male failure to own up to the, to the woman who is bearing one's uh, child, right? And so again, he points out here, that there is no quick and easy natural solution to these dilemmas because the remedy really is appropriating Christ's own uh, cruciform, self-giving love in lives of faith, hope, and love. That's the Christian marriage is a, in Roman Catholic language, a supernatural charism. Uh, Yes, there can be all sorts of families with all sorts of relationships, whether you call them marriage or something else doesn't really matter. If they lack, if they lack this redemptive grace, the sanctifying grace of, of Christ crucified at work in your life, in people's lives against 
uh, self-serving uh, eroticism, you're going to have this dilemma that our culture faces in, in the solution it wants of separating intercourse uh, from love. Yeah, I think that's good to point out. It's not just separating sex from babies, but separating sex from love. You know, <laughs> that that is seems to be just as as pervasive as the other. I just have one more thing I want to bring up uh, about Levering's book here. And early on, there's a very instructive comparison of the differences between Plato, Plato's doctrine of about marriage in the Republic Book Five and Aristotle's discussion of marriage in the politics. And if you can guess that, that Levering will be liking Aristotle over Plato. But he, he drove this point home to me in a way that I'd not really put together before, that uh, the source of all the anti-marriage, anti-family rhetoric goes back to Plato's Republic in which uh, Plato basically wants to uh, abolish exclusive relationships. Uh, He doesn't even want parents to know who their children are, right, and so forth, right? And then he wants the guardians to be bred. So there's a program of eugenics going on in there and everything uh, and so forth. So the utopianism of the Republic lives on today in a lot of the anti-marriage, anti-family rhetoric that we're hearing in so many places. And so I would just conclude with this. You know, in terms of my appreciation of the book, we might talk a little bit about criticism at some point, but my appreciation of the book is this. If you can get past the semantics of him calling this a sacrament, and you can simply read instead Christian marriage in place of the sacrament of marriage. Uh, There's so much to be appreciated here, uh, especially as he's taken the Aristotelian language of nature and grace and put them back into a biblical frame of reference about the redemption of our bodies. And that becomes concrete ethically in living out the married vocation. All right, great. Well, he sounds like our kind of Catholic theologian. So, um, so, so what's the takeaway here for listeners? So I guess I I have two final things I'd like to say. So one is that in terms of the swirling cultural conversation, I think this is, this is the most basic issue to address, which is that most contemporary Europeans and North Americans, and probably in much of the rest of the world, accept what Christianity has come to define marriage as, which is a lifelong, exclusive, sexually active, and loving covenant between two people. And uh, whatever kind of critiques or difficulties people have in getting there, it is still very much the working definition in the air. It's what you see enshrined in romantic comedies, in love stories stories that we all are so attached to, that we still accept that Christian understanding of what marriage is. But in practice, I think we have lost sight of both the law and the gospel that make that definition even possible. So both the the law and the sense of the practices that greatly increase your chances of successfully pulling off a lifelong marriage, and sexual restraint is, of course, one of the first ones beginning in youth, um, but throughout 
throughout the lifetime and throughout a world of temptations, which might be another person's body, but it might also be, for example, absolutizing your work or seeking fame. Those can also be temptations that destroy the marriage covenant. But also, and this is, of course, the much harder one to argue because you and I are not invested in a civic form of Christianity, and nor do we have any interest in imposing, much less so, our religion on anyone. But I think we've shown that there is a material connection between this widely accepted definition of marriage and the gospel from which it arose, the soil on which it arose, the gospel beginning with the creation stories in Genesis and extending all the way through the final bridal um, exuberance of the end of the book of Revelation. And so I think to an extent that just um, attending again to the law or the rules that greatly increase the chance of a successful marriage, that can do a lot of good. But there still has to be enough of uh, the breath of the gospel informing why we should even attend to that definition of marriage to keep it going. And I think we are beginning to see that if the gospel is not continuing to inform what marriage is, at some point people are going to say, why do love, sex, and marriage have anything to do with each other. Let's completely divorce all three of those things. We can seek those needs in all sorts of different places. So that that's what I would say to the, the cultural moment that we're at. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I just want to say a few remarks about my pastoral practice. When I was first ordained in the 1970s, I was so excited to have the power to do a wedding. And I was just eager to do weddings. And so whenever somebody was looking for a wedding, I was Johnny on the spot. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> you know, and uh, I even did a wedding in Central Park once. And then I learned that these people that I was uh, performing weddings for were getting divorced after a year or two. And this really struck, uh, afflicted my conscience. What was I doing here? Just thinking I could just uh, treat these people in a, in a marriage mill and get a little honorarium or a good party out of it or something. And I really did some serious reflection, and I decided at that point that I would not ever again do a wedding without premarital counseling. And the premarital counseling would cover the usual psychological and uh, practical stuff we did in those days, in the 70s and 80s. But I would also include, especially for people who were uncatechized, I would include six weeks going through the small catechism with them. I said, you want a Christian marriage? Um, it's my duty to teach you what a Christian marriage is. And so I actually catechized these folks who would come to me for weddings. And I think that was a very good practice uh, that I adapt, adopted at that, at that point. So I would encourage pastors uh, to think this way. Uh, if you're right that people still have the idea from Christianity of what a marriage is and therefore seek the blessing of the church, pastors should give the blessing fulsomely by catechizing prospective candidates for marriage so that they know what they're saying when they make those vows. And I would, I would always say to them at that point, how dare you make this promise? How do you know how you're going to feel in five years or 10 years or 50 years? And of course, that's the question that actually absolutely flummoxes 
them. You know, I don't know how I'm supposed to just make such a promise that I'll do this till death parts us. And I answered, G-O-D, God. God is the one who joins you together. It's by relying on God who joins you together that you can say confidently today that I'll be there for you every other day of the rest of our lives together. Yeah, that's wonderful. So if pastors are going to perform Christian weddings, it can only be because they are preparing two people for a Christian marriage. And it is not legalistic to <laughs> to catechize and prepare them for the real thing. You're doing them a huge favor. Great. Well, the the last thing I, I just want to say is to bring this back to theology proper. I mean, we've, we've made the case for why it, it seems strange, but is ultimately um, affirmed that Christianity produces its distinctive doctrine of marriage. But just to point it back in the other direction for a moment, what does the high valuation of marriage say about our doctrine of God? And I think just the, the brief takeaway I want to give us here is that the idea that God is disinterested in his love for us and that he values altruistic ethics, I think is completely wrong. I think instead, the reason why this marital imagery is so important scripturally and has developed that way in a lot of Christian theology is because God is passionate. He is jealous. He is committed. He is faithful. He is beyond lifelong. He's eternity long in his commitment to us. <laughs> and this this is the right way to conceive of God, not this, um, you know, cold deistic omni stuff <laughs> that we're taught is where you start with God and then somehow you have to fit Jesus into it. But rather, God has always been this impassioned lover who desires love in return from his spouse. Uh, now, you know, the, the, the tiny critique that's right is to say that it's not that we supply on our own side the attractive qualities that makes God get around to loving us. And indeed, in, in human relationships, obviously we do identify rather than create the loveliness we find in our spouse. So that that's where the break has to take part. But I think that's been so overplayed to the point of getting this this very cold objective, well, I've given you salvation, you know, it's it's up to you now, or I don't know, the, all, all the ways that, that that is misplayed. God is a passionate lover, not a, a disinterested uh, author of a legal contract that you can sign or not sign. It doesn't really matter to him one way or another. And he'll enforce it one way or the other, too, right? Yeah, yeah right. Michael Visegrad, the Jewish theologian, says this point beautifully, agreeing with you that the, the, the God of the scriptures is a passionate God. And he says, surely, of course, God's love for Israel does not depend on Israel's returning love, but it surely seeks it and desires it to such an extent uh, Wissagrad says that God's heart is broken when it, love is, the, is failed to be returned. And I think that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that a Jewish theologian tells Christians what the gospel is in marital terms. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Good. Good discussion, Sarah. Thank you. All right. Great. And uh, next time will be our final regular episode of the season on St. Augustine's City of God. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.